This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, July 21st, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. A commission aimed at reforming the War Powers Act is out with its recommendations. The Cato Institute Vice President Gene Healy says, for the most part, it's typical bipartisan PAP. Healy says despite what the commissioners believe, there really isn't any confusion about how the Constitution assigns the power to declare and execute war. It's one of Washington's perennial blue ribbon commissions, uh, bipartisan blue ribbon commissions, and this one headed by two former secretaries of state, James Baker and Warren Christopher, and a bunch of other important uh, Washington muckety-mucks. And uh, for the most part, the proposal that the commission has come out with, the uh, National War Powers Commission, uh, is something called the War Powers Consultation Act of 2009. And it's mostly typical bipartisan PAP. Uh, it, it, it's based on the idea that what we really need is for uh, people on both sides of the people on both sides of the political aisle and people uh, in both branches to sit down together and talk, and that's how we will solve our problems with the allocation of of, of war powers. Uh, the main thing it does, the proposal sets up a joint congressional consultation committee that. Uh, and, and requires, sort of requires, consultation that the president consult with the committee in anything uh, that's a significant armed conflict that's expected to last more than a week. Uh, the, the, the consultation requirement is only uh, semi-mandatory. Uh, it, has a, it has an escape clause. And for the most part, the commission's proposal proceeds as though the Constitution's allocation of war powers is that Congress has the power to consult about war before or after the president does what he wants anyway. And I don't think that's what the the original constitutional allocation of war powers was. What was the original constitutional ideal of where the war power should be vested? Well, Congress has the power to declare war. And this was b- viewed broadly by a, a lot of the, uh, the founding generation. Uh, Madison said that in no part of the Constitution was more wisdom to be found than in the clause which grants the powers over war and peace to the legislature rather than to the executive. He says, because the trust and temptation would be too great for any one man. I think uh, we've seen that a number of times throughout our history, unfortunately. Now, of course, the president has the power as commander-in-chief, but as even Hamilton said in Federalist 69, that means no, that he's no more than the, quote, first general and admiral of the Union. Uh, and generals and admirals are very important. They have an important job, but they don't get to decide whether and when and with whom we go to war. So the, uh, the constitutional allocation of war powers, I, I think, was quite different. I mean, Congress, had the, Congress was expected to authorize conflicts, and the president was supposed to be the first general and admiral in those conflicts and would have a a tremendous operational control in conflicts that had been authorized by Congress. Uh, I I think that's something we've we've drifted very far away from over the course of the 20th century and into the 21st. How did that occur? There are many aspects to that story. Uh, You know, you saw some slippage even very early on of the separation of army command from the power to authorize uh, really gave an avenue for uh, presidential mischief. Uh, James K. Polk in the uh, in the Mexican-American War, uh, which was declared, uh, but but uh, Polk was was essentially able to spark the conflict he wanted 
by sending troops into disputed territory. But for the most part, you, for, for most of the, uh, the 19th century and uh, the, uh, the early 20th century, uh, major wars were authorized or declared in, in some way. Uh, when, when you see the constitutional Rubicon crossed is really in Korea with Harry Truman's undeclared war, his quote-unquote police action in, in Korea. And then in Vietnam, you see a, a little bit of a, a, a different angle on the presidential usurpation of the, of the power to, to, uh, to go to war. In Vietnam, you have Congress uh, in the Gulf of, Tonks, Gulf of Tonkin Resolution pass an extraordinarily broad authorization that essentially punts the decision over war and peace to, to the president. Uh, Johnson called it Grandma's Nightshirt because it covered everything. It gave the president all the power to do whatever, whatever he wanted, whatever he thought was, was necessary in the Vietnam conflict. And Iraq, in many ways, is a lot like the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, the, the, the resolution that Congress passed to authorize the Iraq war in, in October 2002 was also like grandma's nightshirt. And it also, just as the Gulf of Tonkin resolution uh, you know, punted the decision of the president and uh, Johnson ramped up the, uh, the Vietnam War uh, six months and in an intervening election later, a uh, very similar thing happened with uh, the Iraq War resolution. And the form of the resolution, which says the president has the, uh, the power to use all necessary and appropriate force and also uh, sets out a couple of goals in the preamble of the authorization, it really uh, w was designed to allow congressmen and senators to avoid accountability for the decision to go to war and to, say, to be able to say later that, uh, you know, I was, before it, I was for it before I was against it or, or what have you. And so that is a, a problem, and that is one thing that the commission was trying to address, although I don't think they did a very effective job of it. What would put the accountability uh, for these war decisions back into Congress? There are a number of proposals. Uh, the, the National War Powers Commission flirts with one of them that, that has some promise. Uh, in, in another uh, section of their, their draft bill, they refer to the idea that uh, – well, they they have a, a proposal to require an up or down vote even after the conflict has started, and then they suggest that Congress can change its internal uh, rules to make, for example, appropriations bills providing further funding for uh, an, a disapproved war to make them out of order and to uh, to use the power of the power of the purse to bring an unauthorized war to a halt, and. There, there are some other there are some other proposals like that that have been floated out there. Uh, congressman Walter Jones, the uh, the famous Freedom Fries Republican congressman who has since become an opponent of the Iraq War, had had a similar proposal. I think these are all interesting ideas. There's some merit in in exploring a, a reform in that in that direction. But I think ultimately what uh, well, Congress, we, in, in a sense, we do get the government we deserve. The reason that Congress, uh, congressmen and senators do not want to be held accountable for the decision to go to war is because the people don't hold them accountable for it. Uh, you know, congressmen and senators would prefer to have the decision, the hard decisions the, that the Constitution grants to them delegated to the president, and they'd prefer to go back to their business of uh, passing out pork and doing constituent service. Uh, 
Now, until I, I think there are a number of proposals to, to force Congress to, to stand and be counted. Uh, and I, as I said, I think they're interesting, but I think at the end of the day, they're going to end up like uh, a dieter's note on the refrigerator because Congress can always, no Congress can truly bind a future Congress. You know, we've seen this a million times. Uh, a good example is the Freedom to Farm Act, by which Congress was supposed to end farm subsidies, but no one Congress can bind a future Congress. Congress always has one hand free to, to untie itself. And so I, I think ultimately what's got to happen is that the American people consider the, the, that we develop, uh, recover more of a constitutional culture and that we hold our elected representatives accountable when they try to dodge the responsibility that the Constitution places on them. Gene Healy is a vice president of the Cato Institute and author of the new Cato book, The Cult of the Presidency. You can buy your copy at Cato.org.